Hey, what's happening? What's going on? This is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I am your long-suffering host, Dante Stack. And today, ladies and gents, we are on part three of a three-part question. So the grand finale, the denouement, if you will, of this question. The final countdown, the final climax, the end. What is that question? That question is this. What if God was evil? It's tough. It's hairy. We've dealt with it for two weeks. Now on to the third and final chapter. Here we go. There's a lot of reasons not to like Adolf Hitler. (laughs) Many. Many reasons, and perhaps not chief among them, but certainly mm, doesn't help his case. It's another stone to throw at his gravestone, is that he came off as very hypocritical. And perhaps chief among his hypocrisies was, for one, he wasn't blonde and blue-eyed like he apparently wanted his master race to be. And two, more vitally, there's a decent chance that he himself was Jewish, or at least a quarter Jewish. According to jewishvirtuallibrary.org, Hitler's grandmother had Hitler's father out of wedlock. And in fact, no one actually seemed to know who fathered Hitler's grandmother's child. And apparently there's a, a fair likelihood that Hitler's grandmother did have a child with a Jewish man. Uh, The reason being is that his grandmother was a servant, apparently, in this Jewish household. So she lived there, she worked there, and, you know, apparently during her stay there was impregnated. We don't know by whom, but there's a fair chance that living in a Jewish household, it would be by a Jewish man. So, you know, that's just one of those things where you look at Hitler, you look at all that he accomplished, or all that he did that was terrible, specifically in his hate-mongering, his fanatical racism against the Jewish people, and then just to be so radically uh, hypocritical if he, in fact, does have this heritage. He himself was really worried about this, and according, again, to that website, during his reign of terror, he made a law that Jesus Christ and Adolf Hitler were not to be considered Jews. Jesus was certainly Jewish, so he he needed to backpedal out of that one somehow, and then he might as well throw his name in there, just in case he did turn out to be Jewish. To me, that's often, that sort of hypocrisy just shows you're always on the wrong side, right, when you're doing that type of hypocritical thing. You know, you can smell this type of hypocrisy on the breath of politicians all the time. They're doing the exact opposite of what they say. You see this often, it seems like, with celebrities. They talk about, you know, being green and and being environmentalists, but yet they're doing a lot of things that seem to be counter that measure, you know, flying their own personal jets, those sorts of things. Hypocrisy quickly discredits whatever you're trying to accomplish. So thus far, we've asked this question, what if God was evil? And we've tried to apply it very personally. You know, we started with that first episode with this idea of the blue mist God telling you to go kill an innocent person, and then relating that to the story of Abraham. In order to elicit a feeling within you of what would you actually do if you discovered somehow that God was not all good, was not all loving, was not all beautiful and wonderful and caring, How would that change your relationship to it? Or would it change your relationship to him? Maybe it doesn't. You know, it says over and over again in scriptures, fear God. I think there's maybe a different meaning behind that word fear in the context of scripture. But there's certainly a reality to it as well, that it is entirely appropriate 
to fear God in the very literal sense of fearing him because he is so powerful that whether or not he's good or evil, you're not going to be able to combat him. You're not going to be able to call him out and be like, God, I know what you're up to. That's not good. Change your ways, oh God. You're going to lose that battle. No matter whether God is actually an angel of light or an angel of darkness. Were the tribes people trying to go into war with sticks against the 20th century Western military that just went in with Gatling guns and just mowed down these tribal peoples? There's no chance, you know? So again, first episode, we just tried to dwell on this idea of how does our perspective of God and God's goodness change us and our relationship to him? And then B, you know, this story of Abraham nearly sacrificing Isaac What does that say about God, especially when all the other gods on the block are asking for their followers to sacrifice their firstborn and do these hideous things? And then last week, we blew that picture up and looked at the mainframe of the claims that God called the Israelites and God called his people to genocide other nations, other people groups. And we specifically looked at God calling Moses and the Israelites to slay all the Midianites. And if you're new to our program, what we try to do is to set up a culture and an atmosphere and an environment where we can ask honest questions about the Bible without feeling the burden of, if I don't come away with an answer to this, I'm an infidel, or I have to have my Sunday school answer ready by the end of the episode. No, I don't believe that's authentic living or authentic faith. So for me, who is a Christian, I'm bringing these questions up and I'm vetting them and I'm trying to wrestle with them, not as a way to alienate myself from Christianity or alienate myself from God by no means. I'm doing this to get closer to him and to actually wade in the muck of the difficult questions that I don't have answers to. And spoiler alert, we're not going to actually answer these questions in this show. That's not what it's about. It's about asking it. And so with no further ado, when I started this series, I wanted to find a scenario where we could most profoundly ask and vet the question of, is it possible God could be evil? And just throw that at myself Or throw that at you and see what happens. And when I dwelled on that, the thing that seemed most obvious to me was to look at a scenario where God said, I'm not going to do this, or I can't do this, and then he does it. So this question of hypocrisy is the one we're going to today. God says many times in the Bible that he will not lie. In Numbers 23, actually Balaam, who we mentioned just last week and we just saw slaughtered last week, the weird prophet guy actually talking about God, says, God isn't like man. He does not change. He does not lie. Essentially, the same thing is repeated in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. And then in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews actually says in chapter 6, verse 18, that it is impossible for God to lie. And I think the underpinnings of that are that it goes against his nature and that that would violate his holiness. So it's not just something he won't do. It's something he physically can't do, which is kind of putting up that question like, Can God make a stone so heavy that he can't pick it up? Well, apparently there's a formula out there. God can be of such a character that there are things that he can't do. In this case, the writer of Hebrews is saying, because of his character, because of who he is, he literally cannot lie. And one more instance of this, Paul, in his letter to Titus, begins it this way. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages. God, who never lies. And I'll go one more for you. Jesus himself, in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 44, he's yelling at the Pharisees and he says, You're just like Satan, the father of lies, because it's in his character that everything he says is going to be a lie. 
this is a very rough paraphrase, but essentially Jesus is equating Satan's character with lying, saying that he's the father of lies, all lies come forth from him because that is who he is. Similarly to how God can never lie because of his character, it appears that Satan can only lie because of his character. So then, if there was something in the Bible where we could point at and say, look, here's a very obvious lie, then we would be in trouble, right? If we found a passage and it said right here, and then God lied and said, blah, 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 that would be a difficult thing (laughs) to come across and almost irreconcilable, right? Well, you can exhale. We're not going to find that, right? (laughs) There's nowhere in scripture, as far as I know, and I've read it several times that I saw and it said, and God specifically lied saying blank. However, there is the little story of King Ahab and King Ahab's demise. So we're going to go through this story. And I honestly, I don't have much commentary on this. Uh, I don't know what to do with it. So we'll just go through it. I'll lay it on the table for you. And then after I'd like to make a few closing remarks about this whole question that we've been wrestling with for three episodes and then we'll be done we mentioned way back when i think episode three may have been the first time i referenced it about the intensity scale of questions that we ask here on this program this one is definitely a nine a 9.5 because i just don't know what to do with it so you know we saved the best question for last in our series here not last and don't worry there's plenty more questions <laughs> We've got 365 questions to cover. We're not running low. I'm just saying this specific event, this story, there's so many mangled questions I have in my own mind about it. It definitely makes my list of like top three questions from the Bible, I think. Um, I haven't written that list, so I, I don't know for sure if it would make. Anywho, I'm getting off topic here. The point is, this is a weird, tough passage, and it actually shows up in two different books of the Bible. So if you're not super familiar with how the Bible's laid out, or what each book of the Bible is about, let me provide some backdrop here for you. So we've talked in previous episodes. Once upon a time, God calls this guy Abraham out and says, look, Abraham, I know you don't have any kids, but you're going to have some kids, and you're going to be the father to a great nation, and they will be my chosen people. Okay, fast forward, that people ends up being the Israelites. Israelites are stuck in bondage, are a people stuck in slavery in Egypt. God calls Moses, leads them out of Egypt, eventually to the place they call the Promised Land, which is essentially modern-day Israel. Once there, in Israel, eventually you get a line of kings. Namely, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And then after Solomon, the nation of Israel breaks up into two. In the north, you have the nation that's continued to be called Israel. In the south, a nation that's called Judah. And then in the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, we have books that chronicle the lives of the kings of both Israel and Judah and the things that went on there. Now, when I say the word chronicle, I mean chronicle. Because specifically, we have 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles that chronicle the lives of the kings. And those books, 1 and 2 Chronicles, mainly focus on that southern nation, the nation of Judah. Whereas these other history books, 1 and 2 Kings have more of a slant of emphasis on the nation of Israel. Okay, got that? A little bit tricky, but essentially they're history books. And the story we're focusing on this week is about King Ahab, who was king over Israel. And this story is documented in both First Kings, again, Kings being the books that more focus on the nation of Israel, but it's also written and chronicled in Second Chronicles. For the purposes of expediency and because King Ahab was a king of Israel, we're going to 
focus our attention on reading just the First Kings version. But you can look it up. Both passages are almost verbatim the same. But here's the thing. There's this guy, King Ahab, king over Israel. And he doesn't like God. He doesn't like the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He happens to like these other gods, uh, specifically Baal. Now, Baal is this Phoenician god. We've talked about this false god in previous episodes. But one of the big things is that people that worship this Baal do human sacrifices and do a lot of like really easily seen evil stuff in their worship of this false god, Baal. Actually, it's documented another later king, King Ahaz, not to be confused with our King Ahab, he actually goes and in his worship of Baal, sacrifices his firstborn son, you know, in flame to this this god. But anyway, the context of the story is that King Ahab keeps fighting against the Syrians. The Syrians are just north of Israel. And First Kings tells us that the Syrian king just keeps going into Israel thinking we can easily take them, we can easily take them. And First Kings document how God saves Israel repeatedly. And actually, you know, Israel has huge, huge, huge victories over Syria. And these wars were defensive wars for Israel. Israel was not the invading party. It was the Syrians coming south just thinking like, hey, we can easily knock these dudes out. And then God, boom, saves Israel each time. But then, after these wars, King Ahab's thinking to himself, and he's thinking, hmm, we really busted up Syria, so they can't really defend themselves very well these days. And there's this territory that I really want. Why don't I go? I'll make an alliance with the king of Judah, you know, that former Israel nation that split up and is now south of Israel. And we'll both go, and we'll just take this land. It'll be no problem. All right, so that's the context for this story. And I'm just going to read it straight through. This is 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 1 through 28. Hang tough. Here we go. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And Ahab, the king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about four hundred men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And Ahab the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chananah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so, and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them, and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. 
And when he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains, as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Okay, I'll stop there, actually. So that was 1 Kings 22, 1 through 23. So did you get the broad strokes there? King Ahab calls his buddy, King Jehoshaphat, from the south, from Israel, up to him and says, Hey, let's go take this place. Then Jehoshaphat says, Whoa, whoa, whoa. First, talk to your prophets. Let's see what God has to say about this before we just go, you know, destroying things. And I didn't say this before, but King Ahab devastated all those who loved God in Israel. He went out and did like a purge type situation to where all the prophets hid in caves and were essentially being holocausted except the yes men. There's an earlier story just a few chapters earlier where a prophet Obadiah, who actually has a book written in the Bible, is hiding in a cave and another prophet Elijah comes to him and says, hey look, you need to take this message to King Ahab. And Obadiah's like, dude, Dude, does God hate me so much that he wants me to die today? Because if I go talk to Ahab, I'm going to die. Because he likes to kill all of us God-fearing people. So that's the circumstances within King Ahab, you know, is inquiring of the Lord. So it's not hard to believe that these 400 prophets he has on hand are just simple yes-men. So that's what happens at first. Ahab has these prophets speak. Maybe he's even rigged the system. But they all say, yes, yes, of course, you'll beat Syria. Go, go. Win your battle. And there must have been something in this display that Jehoshaphat thought was a little suspicious because Jehoshaphat says, eh, there's got to be someone else we can ask. I don't really trust these guys. And Ahab surely sighs. Yes, yes, I know of Micaiah, but I hate him so much he only says mean things. And it's amazing. I don't know how or why that Ahab hasn't killed Micaiah already. But apparently he hasn't. Oh, and by the way, right after Micaiah gives this story, the very next thing that happens is Ahab has him thrown into a dungeon. So it doesn't go very well for Micaiah. Anywho, they bring Micaiah. And first, before Micaiah actually gets there, the messenger who's bringing Micaiah to Ahab says to Micaiah, You better agree with all the other prophets. Okay, mister? And Micaiah agrees. And he comes to Ahab and he says, Yep, all the other prophets, they're right. Go into battle. It's fine. And Ahab knows right away, because Micaiah's actually prophesying something good for him. So he shouts at him, How many times do we have to have this conversation? It sounds like this is like a weekly ritual of Micaiah comes in, Micaiah lies, Ahab yells at him, and then Micaiah really tells him what vision he's really gotten. So, after being rebuked, Micaiah says, On the battlefield, all the men are without a king. And they all go home to their own towns. Essentially saying, You're going to die in the battlefield, and we're going to lose. And if the story ended there, okay. But it doesn't. 
And then Micaiah goes on and says, I saw God talking with the other spirits. Who are these other spirits? I don't know. The host of heaven is what the scripture refers to it as. And God's saying, who's going to get Ahab to go into battle here? Who's going to entice him? Who's going to lure him to go into battle? And Micaiah says that a bunch of spirits apparently are talking back and forth and they're having a conversation. You know, this is something unprecedented. I can't think of anywhere else in scripture where you have this image of God, like, in his council and he's like throwing out ideas you know it's like in the writer's room like hey what should happen next fellas should ross get with rachel in the next episode or should we keep milking that for another couple seasons and this one shy writer you know raises his hand and says well they could go to vegas and get really drunk and get married but they don't actually mean it yet so it's kind of a tease and then god's like ah that's that's what needs to happen next season and friends let's go with that that's kind of the feel here of like god's taking the best opinion out there and one spirit raises his hand and says i'll go and i'll lie i'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets and that i'll get ahab to go and god says yes i like that plan go do this go lie to ahab and apparently that's what happens micaiah finishes his speech ahab throws him in the dungeon and then ahab goes into battle and subsequently is killed that's our story now Like I said, this isn't God lying, but this is God sending out someone to lie. From what I read, the general consensus seems to be that this is a demon. God's sending a demon to go and do this thing. Now, why? I've heard people explain it as the demon wants just to be an agent of chaos. The demon wants to do bad things, and God's using this bad thing to make good come from it. You know, Ahab was a bad king leading his people in a bad direction, so having Ahab die is a good thing. But why Why do it this way? I mean, if God wanted Ahab dead, he could have done it a million ways. He could have gone Zeus on him and sent a lightning bolt and struck Ahab dead that day. Why use what God's called as sin to produce the ends that he wants? I don't know. I, I don't know. I want to pull out my hair. This story makes no sense to me. And it's made almost all the more bizarre because we don't get this window into, you know, God's counsel or God's heavenly realm in other places. This isn't... Like, ah, yes, yes, God sometimes, he has his council of angels, and he likes to talk with them, and they throw around ideas. And yeah, he lets demons walk around there for some reason. You know, as Christians, we're called to, to stay away from even the appearance of evil. And I know God's got a different standard for himself, but this is like bringing evil in and then using it to accomplish your ends. Like, I, I don't know. I, I'm sorry, I'm without words. I don't have a good commentary here. I don't know what to do with this story, and it seems bad. I don't like it. (laughs) I don't know why God would choose to operate that way. If Satan is the father of lies, and all of his work, all of his actions produce death and evil, why associate yourself with that? Why use that agent of death to do the very thing that you've commanded that holy people, those who follow after your footsteps, shouldn't do? Here in Tyler, Texas, I'm a part of a a film club that watches movies and has discussions once a month. And we started to do a series last month on doubt. So we're going to watch six movies that all have the theme of doubt. And so naturally, we started with the movie entitled Doubt. And if you're not familiar with the film, it stars Philip Seymour Hoffman and Meryl Streep, Amy Adams, excellent film. And it revolves around this idea that in this Catholic school, there's a priest who's probably, maybe, we're not sure, molesting a boy. And this one nun is convinced, even though she doesn't have evidence of it, that he's doing this. 
And she almost does evil things to try to bring this molestation to light. And then the crux of the film pivots on her actually lying, telling a lie. And then she gets the results that she wants, at least in part. It's more complex than that. But it goes with the theme or the idea of, you know, if you're hiding people from the Holocaust or, you know, you're hiding Jews in your basement because the Nazis are banging on your door and asking you to give up all your Jews. And you say, there's no Jews here. That that isn't a sin, that that's doing a good thing, you know, that's in service of the Lord. So it's not wrong. And maybe that's true. But but now our waters are getting like murkier and murkier, especially when God does it himself. He uses a lie to accomplish his ends. And I've heard the explanations like God will use all things for good. And it's not that he sent out this evil. It's that he used the evil for good. But in this scenario, he's listening to a whole lots of other ideas. Surely some of the angels were giving up, raising their hand, giving up ideas that were not. Hey, let's lie. And God specifically took this one and sent him out. And by the way, I've said that the general consensus is that this is a demonic spirit he's sending out. You know, a fallen angel, someone that he's cast out of his heavenly realm. But the text itself doesn't say that. So this could be one of God's faithful angel servants. We just don't know. What do you do with a problem like Maria? What do you do with a problem like this weird lying spirit incident? I don't know. I wish I had an answer to this one, but I don't. So with that, we conclude our three-episode question, what if God was evil? And I don't want to just leave it on that weird feeling. (laughs) So I have a couple final thoughts in this instance. There's a passage in Daniel, Daniel 4.35, where it says of God that God will do what God will do, and no one can stay his path or stop him. And that's kind of how I feel moving out of these waters. You know, we said in a previous episode, God doesn't stand on trial. God doesn't feel the need to answer for himself about what he does. He does what he does, whether we like it or not. And I also want to say that, you know, you may read these passages and this may be very discouraging to you. You might just come away from these three episodes and just feel like, well, I don't know what to think now. I don't know what to believe. I don't know what to do. And my charge is that whether you're someone who has faith or you're someone in a period of doubt or or you're straddling the line between faith and complete atheism, or if you're someone who's in the atheistic camp or the doubters camp and you're wanting to use the content of these last few episodes, these questions, these passages of scripture as spears, as evidence against the God of the Bible or against belief, I should say, then I want you to realize that you're doing it for emotional reasons, right? None of these stories elicit a faith in nothing. None of these stories, you know, should propel us as evidences for there being no God. What these stories do is they tell us about the character, they tell us about the decisions and the ways God acts in time and in history. So you might come away from these questions and think, well, I don't like the God of the Bible. I don't like how he acts. And I think that's an authentic response. And I think that's okay. You know, I I think when you look at these passages and you don't understand or if you even feel anger or you feel frustration, I think those are okay because the Bible doesn't answer, doesn't clear everything up, especially in these passages. It leaves it murky. So I think to feel murky about it, to feel confused or feel lost even, is okay. What I don't think the Bible leads you to is to think, I feel anger, therefore I'm shutting off any concept of God. I'm shutting God off from my life or I'm shutting off faith. I'm shutting off wrestling. That to me is lazy and it's also not really what we're talking about. I think you can only have this conversation about 
what if God is evil or what if God has done evil things if you're believing in God. If you're not believing in God, then you're just looking at these passages and you're thinking, oh, here's another case of where religion has led people to do bad things. But it would be unfair to take that and to have it both ways. To say, look at what religion causes people to do and to say, and I don't like your God. You can't have it both ways. You have to first decide if you believe in God. Then, once you do, then you can start wrestling with who he is. Hopefully that makes sense. If it doesn't, well, we'll come at it again another episode and we'll take another stab at talking about these same sorts of things. So, (laughs) give me more time. But the second point I feel compelled to make is a personal one, and that's how can I look at these passages? How can I have knowledge of these? And willingly admit that I don't have answers for them. And still say I love God and still believe that he's loving and caring and good. And to answer that, I once again have to pull from C.S. Lewis. I've already pulled from him way too much, but I'm going to keep pulling from that treasure trove because treasure keeps coming out. Two ideas. One I think I've mentioned before, and that's there's this story in the Chronicles of Narnia, a horse and his boy, wherein the main characters are trying to get to a location to save the day. And while they're running to this location, they're also being chased by lions. And it turns out the lion is Aslan, is, you know, God. And when they get there, the main character looks at his friend, this girl that was also with them on the chase, and he sees that she has some scratches on her backs, some lion scratches. And he scratches the back of his head thinking, but wait, we already know that the lion was Aslan, the lion was God. So why? Why is the girl, the good girl, you know, one of the good guys, why does she have scratches on her back? And he goes up and he asks Aslan, why did you do this? And Aslan simply says, that's between me and her. None of yours. None of your business. And when I read these passages I don't understand and jump to conclusions like, God, you're bad because you sent this lying spirit to deceive Ahab... I'm operating with such limited information that I think it's I think it's kind of gossipy of me. I'm making an accusation without all the information and I don't even know God that well, so I don't know I don't know the limits or the entire character to define him to say this is good of you or bad of you, God. And secondly, in another Chronicles of Narnia book, The Silver Chair, there's this girl and she just arrived in Narnia and she's super thirsty and she's dying of thirst and she sees a river and she really wants to drink from that river, but on the other side of the river is a lion, and she wants to go down and drink from the river, but she's afraid that the lion will pounce on her as soon as she gets that close. And so she asks the lion, who, of course, is Aslan, Lion, are you going to eat me if I go and I drink from this river? And the lion says, I've eaten many other boys and girls. (laughs) And, you know, uh, a scary response, but not an answer. And eventually the little girl comes to the conclusion that she's dying of thirst. She's dehydrated so badly that whether the lion eats her or not, she's got to drink from the water. She has to overcome her fear because she's going to die of dehydration if she doesn't drink. So even if the lion's going to eat her, she's going to take a sip of that water. And that's how it is with God. Even if he's going to kill us as we run to him, there's no other option. The game is rigged, guys. Whether you like to admit it or not, There's no one else to turn to. If you're angry at him, well, you better do something with that anger. Because Baal, the false god that asks you to sacrifice your children, he's not going to do anything for you. And to get away from these metaphors, these analogies, for me personally, I believe God is good. Because the only litmus test I have at the end of the day is, has he shown up and been good for me? And the answer is yes. I feel for young people especially. I'm pretty young. I'm still 28, but I've experienced enough and had enough encounters with turning points in my life where things could have turned violently in the wrong direction and maybe even turned that corner, but then somehow reversed. 
wherein I can look back and I can feel like I've been saved from a heck of a lot of bad stuff. And more than that, I've been blessed with a ton of stuff I don't deserve. Are there going to be more tribulations in my life and sucky things are going to happen? Absolutely. I don't look forward to them, but I believe God has saved me from a lot of devastation. So, is God good? Well, he's been good to me. Believer, faithful, Christian, look at your own life and look at if God's been good to you. Ask that question in your heart. For you atheists out there, I've already said my words to you. (laughs) Alright, that wraps up this three-part series. Next week, we'll do something lighter, because I need it. (laughs) This is Dante Stagg signing out. Peace be the journey. Three hundred sixty-five honest questions is produced by myself, Dante Stack. Guys, you can find a whole lot more stuff on my website, DanteStack.com. Go there, find other goodies, and as always, if you want free stickers for this podcast and my other podcast, Solve the World. Solve the World, by the way, is a week-by-week fictionalized story that I've made. I'm trying to imitate like the best of TV shows these days, where they have a well-plotted, well-paced show that unravels a story over a season or two seasons or a three-season arc. I'm trying to do that in weekly podcast form with sound effects, music, and a fully written story. So check that out. If you like stickers and you want stickers for this podcast and that podcast, all you got to do is write a review for me on iTunes. Uh, You can find instructions on how to do that on DanteStack.com. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Hey, a little postscript here. Because I'm a cinephile, I couldn't resist not mentioning the movie Frailty. I tried to think of various ways to sneak this into the program each week, and every time I just kind of ended up leaving it on the shelf, because it never quite absolutely applied to the context. But it's really interesting when you talk about this type of situation, especially uh, when we talked about Abraham sacrificing Isaac. So Frailty was a movie made in the 90s, starring and directed by Bill Paxton, uh, also starring Matthew McConaughey. And it's a horror film, but it revolves around Bill Paxton character, father of two young boys, and he's given a vision of demons to kill. But the demons are, you know, real people, or at least appear to be real people walking about in life. And he goes and he believes he's being faithful by killing these people. And I don't know, but the movie is really difficult for me because I wonder what would I do if I totally felt that way? You know, if I out of vision and believe that God was telling me to do this thing, this evil thing, would I actually have the nerve to do it? And I don't know, since it's a horror film, you know, obviously it's like relishing in the killings and it's relishing in the darkness of it all. But if you're into thought-provoking dark films, it's one worth checking out. Frailty.